0: Welcome to the Sanctions Space Podcast. I am Justine Walker, Global Head of Sanctions, Compliance, and Risk at ACAMS. This series brings you the stories behind sanctions. What are the trends? Who are the key people? And how do the threads of the past shape future thinking? Today we are going to discuss Russia and the mounting fears that have risen from the build-up of military troops along the Ukraine border. And appropriately for this discussion, we have moved to Helsinki. Joining me today is Dr. Maria Shagina, a visiting fellow of the Center of U.S. Politics and Power at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs. Maria focuses on economic statecraft, international sanctions, and energy politics, and she has a particular expertise on the post-Soviet states. Maria, really welcome to the podcast. Great pleasure to be with you, Justin. So gosh, how do we start this discussion? Well, I'm going to just really revert to some fairly stark words recently spoken from a senior EU diplomat. And those words were, Europe is now closer to war than it has been since the breakup of former Yugoslavia. Maria, the current crisis began in November with the mass buildup of Russian troops along the 2000 kilometer land border with Ukraine Just talk us through why the situation has prompted such huge security fears, both in Brussels, Washington, and indeed across all of Europe.
1: The military picture indeed looks very grim, and it's still developing. We saw the first military build-up in April last year, and the intentions were fairly clear. Putin wanted to land a high-level talk with Biden, and he did it. The second build-up that happened in November and is still unfolding puzzled a lot of intelligence officers and Russia watchers because the intentions or of what does Russia want are still fairly uncertain. The build-up started in November. Russia has amassed more than 100,000 troops on the border but also around Crimea and very recently it announced uh, joined exercise with Belarus so the heightened tensions of invasion from all sides are quite alarming whether this is just a saber rattling or Russia is ready for full invasion in Ukraine is still a big question mark again the question what does Russia or Putin want remains unanswered this uncertainty alerted the intelligence community and the Russian watchers that this time could be different. Is it just the rational factor that are factored in here? Probably not. There is historical emotional attachment to Ukraine that Putin-Russia has, so... One can say that the costs of enactment for Russia are higher now than the cost of potential sanctions and further isolation. So Russia wants to keep the tensions high to potentially extract some concessions and reap some opportunities. And these mounting tensions, we
0: have seen high-level security talks taking place between the West and Russia. There's been various negotiations over the past 10 days. However, they did not break an impasse over Russia's demands. You joined us earlier on this month on our monthly sanctions compliance update. And you actually described the talks and the status of the talks as saying, no breakthrough, no failure, significant differences remain. What security assurances is Russia really seeking? And how far reaching are these demands? You know, is this going to be possible to achieve?
1: Indeed, Russia laid out quite far-reaching demands, and they are composed of three elements. First, Russia wants written legally binding guarantees that Ukraine will never, never, ever join NATO to quote the Russian representatives, that NATO will have no expansion further eastwards, and that NATO's military presence should be rolled back to the 1990s level. Those demands go far beyond the Ukraine crisis. You know, what started was the disagreement of who should implement the Minsk Agreement to, whether we should put more pressure on Russia or Ukraine, uh, spiraled out of this context. It's no longer about the Donbass conflict. It's about redrawing the post-war security architecture. And ironically, Europe here is somewhat sidelined in those talks, as you described the high-level talks that happened uh, last week, happened primarily between the US and Russia. Russia doesn't see the EU as a worthy interlocutor. It wants to have peer-to-peer communication with the US and We started with fairly low expectations, what type of demands uh, can be fulfilled, uh, and the US and NATO were fairly straightforward that those are non-starters when it comes to questioning NATO's open door policy or NATO's expansion eastwards. The only area for negotiations is arm controls, missile deployments in Europe that could be open for compromise. But whether this is enough for Russia, this is still a big question. By the end of the the talks, we ended up with, uh, again, a quote, a dead-end conversation, which heightened the level of potential invasion and also tumbled uh, the markets. But now we're in a situation where a third summit between Biden and Putin is not rolled out. And tomorrow we know that US Secretary of State Blinken and uh, Russia's Foreign Minister Lavrov We'll meet again in Geneva to potentially discuss some other diplomatic uh, path. So diplomacy is not dead, but significant differences remain, as I said, in your uh, earlier event. And the Russia's intentions vis-a-vis Ukraine still remain clear. That means that the path of deterrence, the path of economic sanctions remains highly relevant. Gosh, and with all of these very moving parts, and it could
0: change any day, but clearly with the rise of tensions, sanctions have emerged as one of the West's biggest threats. Both the US and Europe have said no option is off the table and that there would be extreme consequences should the Kremlin take military action in neighbouring Ukraine. So, if no option is off the table, what is actually on the table, Maria? What are we actually talking
1: about here? That depends pretty much on which table you're looking at. Is it the <laughs> US's table or the EU's table? The US table is quite full, right? The US spoke of high-impact sanctions, of massive consequences. What started with what I would describe fairly modest sanctions package, sanctioning Russian financial institutions, expert controls on U.S.-made technology and Russia's defense or consumer industries, evolved in a fairly sweeping sanctions package, which was tabled by Senator Robert Menendez uh, last week. This amendment is still to be voted in the U.S. Senate, but it proposes six Quite hard-hitting sanctions. It starts with targeting high-level Russian government officials, including president and prime minister. Then sanctions on Russian financial institutions can be put in place, including not just state-owned banks but also largest private banks, Alpha Bank, Bank Kredit. In two thousand fourteen, we only had sectoral sanctions on the Russian financial institutions. If they are placed on the SDN, that would be quite a step up in uh, sanctions pressure. The next sanctions option that was included is uh, targeting specialized financial messaging services, SWIFT pops up here in mind, but also analogs can be sanctioned. So TELEX, uh, Russia's own alternative SPFS could potentially, but hard because it belongs to the central bank. Prohibitions on Russian sovereign debt can be extended. For now, we have U.S. sanctions on the primary market, but secondary market is still on the table. It could also be extended to state-owned enterprises. Uh, The transactions with those companies will be prohibited with a small caveat that uh, only companies that are under no other sanctions from the U.S. can be put in this pool of potential prohibitions. But also sanctions on extractive industries uh, can be included. And this is key industries for the Russian budget, oil and gas, coal, uh, mineral extractions. So this is an important also step forward to ramp up pressure on the Kremlin. And last but not least, sanctions on Nord Stream 2 is also on the table here. The whole sanctions package is subjected to the Biden administration's determination whether Russia engages or supporting in a significant escalation and as we know from the language about sanctions, this significant uh, transaction, significant escalation is pretty much up to uh, interpretation.
0: Maria, you know, you spoke about whose table, and that depends what's on the table. And I think one of the most influential EU cards that could be played relates to Nord Stream 2, which you've just mentioned. So the gas pipeline between Russia and Germany. You touched upon this in our monthly sanctions compliance update. But just, you know, explain again, Nord Stream 2, how might that fit into this wider diplomatic equation?
1: Nord Stream 2, as you said, divides pretty much everyone. Parties within Germany, countries within the EU, and it strains transatlantic relationship between Washington and Berlin. In light of Russia's military escalation on the Ukraine border, it's politically inconceivable to allow the, the pipeline to go ahead because this pipeline will eventually bring revenues to the Russian budget. And right now, the sanctions package aims to increase costs uh, for the Russian government to launch this invasion. So the U.S. considers Nord Stream 2 as leverage against Russia if Moscow escalates in Ukraine. There is obviously a strong internal debate within the, the U.S. whose amendment, uh, you know, under what conditions it should be Imposed, but for now we know that the Senator Ted Cruz bill was rejected in US Senate and it's likely that sanctions on Nord Stream 2 will be imposed if Russia escalates in Ukraine. The scope of sanctions didn't change pretty much. Those would be new sanctions on any foreign entity engaged in the planning construction and operation. Also, the review of the waivers that the Biden administration gave to a Swiss entity, Nord Stream two AGA could be reviewed. But ultimately, the ball is in Germany's court. The Biden administration extended an olive branch to the German government not to impose any extraterritorial sanctions on German or Swiss entity. And by not being ready to go this extra mile to put Nord Stream 2 on the table, ironically, the, the new coalition in Berlin strains these transatlantic negotiations. And Biden administration has been under enormous pressure to defend uh, Germany's position. So it would be ironic because that would even strain the transatlantic relationship further, despite the fact that Biden is trying to, to revive them so much. So we have the US-Germany joint statement from last year, which says that Germany should be ready to impose Uh, sanctions if Russia escalates. And the the current chancellor, Olaf Scholz, uh, in Berlin is, I believe, under enormous pressure right now. So he said a couple of days ago that he would be ready to include Nord Stream 2 as a sanctions option if Russia escalates. Right now, the certification of the pipeline is ongoing, but it's temporarily suspended for a technical reason. It needs to establish a German entity. But this technical suspension can turn very political if Russia escalates.
0: A lot of moving parts, a lot of potential pressure points. But I want to unpack this transatlantic alliances and the imposition of potential sanctions a bit further. Because if we look back to 2014 and the annexation of Crimea and the advancement into eastern Ukraine, we clearly saw sanctions being deployed against Russia. There were also sanctions following the alleged use of a chemical weapon in 2018 on the streets of Salisbury, a town in rural England. But you know, I think it's worth really highlighting that overall there has been a degree of transatlantic hesitation in the use of sanctions. You know, we haven't seen the full-scale alignment that we might have done in some areas. And, you know, Russia is a major EU trading partner. So You know, the use of sanctions will potentially impose self-harm to particularly the EU. So what might we realistically expect if the situation does not de-escalate? What will remain on the table?
1: You're absolutely right. There are a lot of uh, similarities with what we've seen in 2014. It starts with the internal divisions within the EU. We see it again that there are pushing and pulling tensions between member states. Some opt for carve-outs, some push for harsher sanctions, some say we need more dialogue. So this is the same story that we saw in 2014. There are also divisions between the US and the EU. The US is obviously ready to go an extra mile because it's not economically linked with Russia as much as the EU is. And this international interconnectedness between EU and Russia Shields Moscow from harsher sanctions. And we know that Swift was in question. Nord Stream 2 partially was also the Germany again was reluctant. And that makes it hard to be obviously in sync. Uh, it's unfeasible that the US and EU will be on the same page. You know, the same sanctions will be implemented because of different level of exposure. But we are at the moment where low-intensity sanctions won't be able to deter Russia. The only hard-hitting sanctions that we have will inevitably include this self-harm, self-inflicting self-pain for the Europeans. Europeans should be prepared to bear some costs uh, because of the next level of sanctions, and I'm not sure to what extent that they are ready to do so. We've seen a lot of discussions that they are still negotiating, and on January 24, they will negotiate this new package. But the time where they discussing sanctions that sort of kills the the deterrence element because to be able to deter, you need to come up with quick response. So you ask about potential sanctions, and I think at this point it's fair to say that sanctioning Russian financial institution would be a feasible option we already seen that the Russian economy tumbled yesterday, uh, day ago as, as well, resulting in net capital outflow and Sberbank and Gazprom's share were as the, the most affected uh, companies. Nord Stream 2, as I mentioned, would potentially be on the table if Russia escalates. Pro-Russian agents in the occupied entities in the Donbass area could be sanctioned as well. Expert controls was floated, and I think uh, this would have less blowback effect on uh, the Europeans and the Americans, so that would be easier to agree. Another sanctions option is targeting the inner circle people, which would be very much in compliance with the Biden's anti-corruption strategy.
0: Maria, thanks for that. You know, we have talked about de-escalation here you know, for our listeners, they often like to examine what should they be looking out for so they can predict what might happen. So I wondered whether you could say a few words around what does de-escalation actually look like? And I also want to throw into the mix here is, you know, will we see the situation move from the possibility of conventional warfare? So A move military movement into Ukraine or is it going to emerge into something different you know we've seen cyber attacks false flag operations or allegations of false flag operations which obviously Russia denies but just what is this trajectory going to be around de-escalation and how the relationships will move forwards
1: Uh, Russia doesn't like to play by clear rules and to announce, uh, now we're going to escalate or de-escalate. The the space between escalation and de-escalation will be quite gray and Russia will try to exploit it. That's why it's important also from the sanctions perspective to know whether the EU and US are ready to impose any other sanctions that are less than a full escalation. And yesterday we heard that the Europeans are not sure what event can trigger sanctions, if this is just cyber attacks or any other false flag operations, as you mentioned. Today, President Biden mentioned that low-cost sanction could be put in place if Russia engages in something less than full escalation. So it's also important from the sanctions perspective Historically, we know that uh, we can learn from uh, Russia's actions in the past that it likes to, you know, throw cyber attacks or send some green men. So it has some plausible deniability and can capitalize on this very gray behavior that it engages in. Maria?
0: Thank you so much for helping to just set out where we are currently at in the context of the Russia-Ukraine crisis. I hope listeners have found today's discussion useful. Today actually is the 20th of January, and I say that because situation can move so rapidly when we're talking about global politics. Indeed, in two weeks' time, our Global Sanctions Summit will be shining a spotlight on this very fluid situation. So do join us there as well. Thank you for listening. Please do sign up to hear the stories behind sanctions. Maria, again, thank you. Having an input from Helsinki is both appropriate and very much appreciated.
1: Thank you very much for having me.